you are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us on our journey today, we're very honoured to be joined by Maggie McGuinness, a tutor from St. John's College, who specialises in American women's poetry, specifically experimentalism in poetry. Maggie, welcome. Thank you. So I know very little about poetry, and I certainly know nothing about experimentalism in poetry. So before we look at some specific poems, can you describe what experimentalism is, especially in the context of poetry? Sure. I think that there are a wide variety of possible answers to that question. Um, for some, experimentalism would be any departure from set forms, the familiar or at least familiar to some rhyming, metered poetry. I'm thinking of experimentalism a little more broadly as poets who are driven to push language and poetic language specifically further than they think that it has been pushed particularly to achieve certain ends. So if they, f- if they have a certain conflict or irony or something that they're finding it difficult to explore in language as it's ordinarily used, they're pushing language to its limits in some way to make room for expression of something that they don't feel like there's room for in the language as it stands. Interesting. And, and why is poetry itself so important? What, what does poetry achieve that other forms of writing don't? I think that... It's interesting that we use the word poetry as a descriptor of anything that's achieved its sort of highest form. When you, I've watched a football game and the announcer has said, oh, he's, he's poetry in motion, you know, mm-hmm. and we're thinking about something that's, that's pared down to its, its most essential functions and that it has a kind of uh, beauty and attractiveness that, that go beyond the everyday. And I think poetry has that. But I also think that it is an interesting mix of thought and freedom from thought. It allows us to think through very difficult questions in ways that aren't limited by logic and yet have the benefit of language. Mm. And I think particularly it allows us to surprise ourselves about questions that we find really important. So you approach something like... um, what does it mean that I love my children in a certain way? And you think you know the answers to those things. If you approach them in a poem, the ways that words can bump up against one another, the ways that turns of phrase can surprise you and lead you down new ways of thinking, they can, they can either help you arrive at thoughts you didn't know you had or, or create thoughts you never had before by the way that the, the music and the life of language in and of itself has a freedom to create meaning rather than simply being a tool for expressing thoughts you already had. So is there more freedom in poetry than prose? Freedom would have to be understood in a particular way to say yes to that. I think yes in a certain sense, that is to say there's freedom for the language, but there's not more freedom for the the composer of the language. I think we think about freedom of expression as I can say anything I want, but I think poetry works very strongly against that and forces you to say things you might not have otherwise said or allows language to say things that it might not have otherwise said, which is a different sort of freedom than the kind of 
no one can fence me in kind of freedom that we right. often use. See, it, it, for me, it's very interesting when you talk about if you're describing the love of your children. I, I don't know how to describe that. I just it's something I sense, something I feel. Um, what's the what's what's the transition between that feeling and the expression? I, is poetry almost an, a, a reflection of the person writing much more than it is of what's happening? I don't think so. But I know a lot of readers of poetry, poets, scholars of poetry would absolutely agree with that, that poetry is primarily an expression of the self. Um, Self-expression is certainly a worthy goal for human health, emotional, spiritual, all kinds of health. Um, when it comes to poetry as an art form, I think that there's something beyond an idiosyncratic response or sort of feeling through one's own responses. I think there's something about the the musical demands of language that require you to step outside of your own idiosyncratic sort of personal impressionistic feelings about something and instead to discover the ways that those impressions might encounter tensions in language, encounter tensions in the world outside of you and sort of be forced to find some new ground for expression. Um, if it were fully idiosyncratic, I think that there would be not much point in writing it, that there's a process that happens. It's about an encounter. It's about a... I'm, I'm questioning myself as I speak because right. I'm thinking about when you say things out loud, how it changes them, and then mm -hmm. I'm saying them out loud and it's changing them. <laughs> and so it's a, a retrograde process there. But um, ultimately, I think there's more to it than self-expression. Sure. Uh, but certainly every poet has their own idiosyncratic style that we can say, oh, that is, that's very clearly in their, the way that they write. Just the same as classical music, when you, we hear composers, we say, oh, that's very clearly that composer as opposed to another. Um, and I'm just wondering how much is the expression of self and how much is the expression of that which is outside ourselves. And you're saying it sounds like there's a, a balance between the two. I think so. And I think style is an interesting place to put that because uh, style is something that cannot be fully interior. It's an aesthetic it's a creation, it's an artifice of a sort, and it can't be something that's just pulled bloody from the soul and thrown on the page. Right. Style is, even if you choose to do that, that's a stylistic choice. And you're, you're leaving the world of a kind of internal dialogue or a half-felt presentiment or a, or a sense of something for an expression of something, um, and it can't be only yours at that point. Our show is very much about the the search for meaning or deeper questions. What's the role of poetry there? I think of poetry as a kind of prosthesis for the human mind or the human soul. It's something that we, we're seeking to reach further than we've been able to reach. And we're creating a new kind of limb for ourselves that allows us to extend what we can grasp. And we build new languages and new ways of, of using the logic of language as well as the affective sort of music of language to push us toward things that we haven't been able to get hold of in quite mm. the same way before. I think it allows a greater scope for um, 
human experience and the the sharing of that experience. It's a, it's a wonderful way to describe it, and that leads us very nicely, I think, into our first poem. Um, I think um, uh, th this is a poem which you've uh, brought in uh, called The Archaic Torso of Apollo by Reina Maria Rilke, who uh, I, is an early 20th century poet, correct? Yes. Um, so would you like to, to read that for us to, so that we can get a sense of that poem itself? I would. Archaic Torso of Apollo. We cannot know his legendary head with eyes like ripening fruit, and yet his torso is still suffused with brilliance from inside, like a lamp in which his gaze, now turned to low, gleams in all its power. Otherwise, the curved breast could not dazzle you so, nor could a smile run through the placid hips and thighs to that dark center where procreation flared. Otherwise, this stone would seem defaced beneath the translucent cascade of the shoulders and would not glisten like a wild beast's fur, would not, from all the borders of itself, burst like a star. For here there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Now, from my limited knowledge of Greek theology, Apollo is the god of music and of truth and of healing, of plague, and indeed of poetry, amongst other things. So why is Apollo in this poem? Apollo's temple at Delphi famously has inscribed over it, Know Thyself. This poem begins with the decapitation of this figure. Mm. We cannot know his legendary head. It's only a torso. And I think self-knowledge here is being relocated in a really fundamental way. The head is gone. You can't look into its eyes, which is normally where we would think about the kind of encounter of knowledge, um, prophecy, but also of poetry in some cases as a kind of self-knowing. Here, that's not possible. And yet, we are still gazed at. The gaze has been turned to low, and it's been spread through this torso and yet it sees us from every place. Mm -hmm. If the head is there, we look at the eyes and we think, I know where the gaze is located and we can avoid it. We can look somewhere else. We can walk behind it. There's a, there's a point of view from which you're not seen. But in this case, with the, with the head gone and the gaze suffused through the torso, there is no place that does not see you, says the poem. And I think Apollo is a, a figure for both beauty and art but also the intellect and those things as united in a way that that's headless here. So if every place gazes at us, um, and particularly, as you're saying, every place that we wouldn't necessarily expect, we would expect the gaze to come from the eyes. But here it's talking about the placid hips and thighs, even the dark center where procreation flared is quite um, uh, uh, flowery language. Uh, if does that mean that being means being watched or that being means being observed in some sense that as soon as we exist uh, we are being observed we are being judged maybe um, or we are being scrutinized at the very least i'm not sure if being is a state of being observed i think at the very least though um, knowledge requires allowing oneself to also be vulnerable to being known in turn, that it's 
it's not when you want to know something and we think about an encounter with a piece of art with something beautiful as something that goes one direction. We look at it, we see it. Mm-hmm. Here it sees us, but we're not allowed to think of that as as an intellect looking at us. Um, and so being might require being gazed at, but here participating in some kind of um, beauty and some kind of encounter with beauty requires you to open yourself up to being seen in turn, I think. So, and I, I dare to sound contrived, is this us staring at it, staring at us? <laughs> Can you say more what you mean by that? Well, is it because the piece of art itself doesn't have intellect, doesn't have, it has being in and of itself, but it, it in and of itself doesn't, doesn't look at us per se. But this poem is quite clearly expressing the way that it does. But is, is it really us looking at the way that it looks at us? Are we reflecting ourselves through it? I see. So the poem posits a, a returned gaze, but in fact, it's simply a reflection of our own gaze. I think that's possible. I think what what I resist in that is the the final phrase, you must change your life, mm-hmm. suggests a responsibility to something outside of ourselves that I, I would hesitate to make merely a reflection of our own regard. There's something here that calls us out of ourselves. And maybe our own gaze reflected back at us could do that. But the the language for me suggests that that there's a there's a distinction between the thing that's looking at us and ourselves, that, that that's part of what's important here for me as a reader, that what calls me to change my life in this is not, is not just a, a self-reflection. For me, these, these final five words are, are so very challenging. The, um, this, this flowery language expressing the beauty of this body. So we're looking at the description of it, and then suddenly it very abruptly says, no, this is about you, and you must change your life. What's being said here? Why must we change our life just by looking at this? I think it's undecidability is you asked earlier what was special about poetry as a form of writing. And I think that undecidability is a big part of it. I'm not entirely sure what it means that I must change my life. But when I read the poem and I come to those last words, I'm struck with them as by a truth, even though the truth escapes me. And so there is a kind of headless Apollo here, a call to knowledge that can't be held in the mind, but that can be sort of felt in the body, a call to action that requires us to admit the hold something outside of us might have over us without being able to understand it. And that's a difficult and dangerous place to be, I think, to say this beauty asks for something from me. And I know that. I don't know what it is, but I know that it requires something of me. And that that sense of uncertainty about what beauty might, might ask for in turn, I think, is part of what the poem is about. Our last question before we take a break. When we often look, particularly from a religious perspective, when we try to focus on personal change, it's often because of something that is quite ugly, um, uh, human suffering, injustice, poverty, or even the ugliness within ourselves that we think this is not good enough, I must do better. 
This seems to me to be very challenging, particularly because it's not ugliness that is necessarily demanding a change of us, although I can understand the headlessness might be ugliness in a different way. But it seems very clearly to be beauty demands a change, not ugliness. And I wonder if you can just speak to that quickly before we take our break. I think there might be something there about being worthy of the beauty we find ourselves regarded by Mm. um, that has echoes of um, the Christian concept of grace, as I'm familiar with it, that there's a tension between sort of what we do to um, expiate our sins versus the freely given grace of the love of some divine figure. And here that's the, the, the head of the divinity has been cut off and there's still a grace here that we don't have to do anything to earn that grace and yet it calls forth a response that asks us to be better, I think. Lovely, thank you. So we're going to just take a pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich with my special guest today, Maggie McGuinness, a tutor from St. John's College. You're back with Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Uh, my guest today is Maggie McGuinness, a tutor from St. John's College. And we've been looking at um, this uh, poem, uh, The Archaic Torso of Apollo. And you also brought in another poem, which is um, much more openly religious, I would say. It's called God's Grandeur. Uh, and I wonder if you'd like to share that one as well. Absolutely. Hopkins is famous for being a bit of a tongue twister. Okay. Uh, so forgive me if my tongue is twisted, but I, I think we can manage it. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Thank you. This poem seems to have a very different perspective on beauty uh, compared to our first poem, um, in that this one seems much more openly theological. Um, In particular, it suggests that beauty itself is specifically evidence of the grandeur of God, and that seems to be quite a different perspective on beauty, and I'm wondering if you can talk to that somewhat. I think that there's a similarity between the two poems in that they both place beauty as outside of us. What's surprising here is that Hopkins is specifically divine theological grandeur asks less of us than the torso, the headless torso of an ancient pagan figure, you know, mm-hmm. from Rilke's perspective as well, that that the requirement of us here seems lesser. And that's, that's a little shocking to me in some ways from um, a Catholic um, one-time priest mm-hmm. in the form of, of Hopkins that, mm-hmm. that we end with the Holy Ghost um, brooding over the earth, protecting it despite the um, embroiled 
nature of human beings in their sort of ordinary daily toils that this that this beauty is wasted on us in a sense and yet hovers over us and protects us in a way that that sort of maternal image that leaves us not thinking precisely about what we owe to it. This this perspective of beauty being external to us seems quite pessimistic to me. Um, certainly this second poem um, seems particularly negative about human life, that all is smeared with trade and bleared and smeared with toil. Can't there be beauty in toil? Can't there be beauty in the way that we lead our lives or even in our own being itself? I think so. Um, in this poem, I think there's room for that as well. I think Hopkins is pointing to an obsession with with labor that bends our backs as opposed to looking upward. And this final image, the Holy Ghost is bent over the world and mm-hmm. brooding over the world. But the, the, the people who are toiling are failing to look upward, failing to see the beauty that's around them. I don't think the kind of the trade and toil that he's addressing is is work in general or even human endeavor in general. It's a sort of digging in the dirt as opposed to um, seeing the the world that God has made for us, the grandeur of God. See, I, this particularly challenges me as, as a Jew because um, the, there's a very strong Jewish tradition that you don't just study Torah, you combine Torah with the trade, that you're meant to be engaged in the marketplace, that you're meant to be engaged in in business in and of itself, even if it is almost drudging work, because that's part of living with God, that you can bring God into that, as opposed to God being very separate from the world and and looking over and protecting. Um, So for me, this is particularly challenging perspective on humanity and on beauty, um, simply because of that, that idea of the beauty being without and that anything can be drudge drudgery you know as opposed to anything could be elevated from from my perspective why why can't we find god in those places particularly as you're saying from you know somebody of quite a religious background it seems quite a a very strong division perhaps between body and soul almost between the human and the divine i think that's that's possible as a reading here um my sense of the 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 trade that he's worried about here is I don't think he thinks that human endeavors necessarily stop us from seeing beauty or being beautiful or or being sort of called to experience the beauty of God. I think we're seeing a response to a kind of English industrial revolution sort of um, soot in the skies kind of image of work that um, – nature has an interesting relationship with, that that there's a sense that not only is the beauty of God being ignored, but we don't even feel the ground we walk on. So it's not only about high things as opposed to the low things of human beings. It's that we're not being intentional about the way that we that we go about our daily lives, that even our even our very feet are sort of 
walled off from the world around us, which I think is an intentionally low image. Mm. And that the beauty is also in the soil. That's another thing that we're separated from. And this final image of, of the Holy Ghost becomes a very homely and small image, as well as a grand image in the title of the poem of a, of a bird with its eggs, mm-hmm. which is um, not exactly the kind of toil that you're talking about, but it does disturb the clear distinction, I think, between high and low that one mm. might be tempted to in this, in this poem. Because, of course, one of those acts of you know, strong labor that connects us to the soil would be farming. And, and while the industrial sooty-filled image is certainly distant and removing us from nature, there can be that toil that very much connects us to nature and needs that connection in order to be successful. Right. So I, I think there's, there's an interesting tension there, definitely. So you mentioned nature a number of times here, and for me it's, it's fascinating, again, coming from a biblical perspective, the book of Ecclesiastes um, uh, is similar here when it says, and for all this nature is never spent, and Ecclesiastes talks of this eternal cycle in nature. And one of the biggest challenges for us today now is that we know that nature is actually diminishing and that there isn't that constant cycle and that nature can be spent. And does that, um, does that change our, our contemporary experience? Does that change the experience of this poem? I think it might. I think we are much more suspicious of the idea that, that nature could be an everlasting, ever-renewing force when we sort of approach the edges of its bounty, that we might find ourselves less certain that the dearest freshness deep down things can resist our constant treading and treading and treading on it. Mm -hmm. And that there's, um, I think Hopkins is speaking in one way outside of concerns like that, and that there's, there's something even deeper down things that's somehow renewing for us if we can if we can get to its essence or its um, what he called its inscape, which is <laughs> a whole other bag of worms. But um, there's there's something that's deeply interior, even in something we think of as exterior, like nature. That I think he would say is is endlessly renewable. Mm. But I think he would also be pretty, and this poem asks us to be alive to the way that things can be worn worn down mm. and our new perspective or our, our contemporary perspective I think would class nature among the things that that can be that can be stepped on too many times. We're almost out of time. So let me just ask very quickly through these two poems we've seen some very differing perspectives on beauty. And I just wonder in a minute if you might be able to summarize these two perspectives and, and what they mean for us moving forward as individuals? I think that the Rilke poem, and one of the special things about poetry is its resistance to summary, but the Rilke poem <laughs> um, asks us to consider looking as a two-way street and to consider ourselves seen by the world around us and that that can create a fundamental difference in the way that we live our lives if we think of ourselves as... Um, responsible to the world around us and to its beauties as well as its uglinesses. Um, the Hopkins poem, I think, asks us for a similar thing from a, from a different angle. It asks us to think about what we choose to regard, um, and that regard is turned on us in the end of this poem, but with 
less of a sense of obligation and more of a sense of, of grace or um, being granted these things rather than being responsible to them, perhaps. It's, it's so wonderful. This has been so eye-opening for me. Um, and we've been looking at these two poems, The Archaic Torso of Apollo by Rilke and God's Grandeur by Hopkins. And this certainly for me adds much more to a an exploration of meaning and beauty and, and what is our place in the face of that. So I really want to thank you, um, Maggie McGuinness, a tutor from uh, St. John's College, who's been our guest today. Really thank you for your profound thoughts and insights and different way of, of looking um, at life through this uh, through these poems. Uh, and I certainly hope that you'll be able to come back uh, to our show and uh, perhaps share more poems and more insights. That would be lovely. Thank you. So you've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>